Today, as we already have heard from Chris, today's the start of Advent. Um, and if you've been around Village any length of time, you'll know that this is uh, one of the times of the year, along with Easter, when we stop what we're doing um, and take time out to focus on, on something specific. And, and during Advent, we're focusing on the, the, the once and future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Christ has come. And he will come again. And that's the tension that we as Christians live in, isn't it? Christmas, the celebration of the first coming of Christ. And, and we, in Advent, in the run-up to Christmas, we intentionally take on this posture of, of looking forward to and waiting on and hoping in the coming of our Savior. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the, the words that, that various people, people said in the run-up to and around the, the time of Jesus' birth. We've never actually, uh, I don't think we've ever actually gone into uh, one of the, the, the Gospels and looked at the events surrounding Jesus' birth in detail like this, so I'm very excited to do that. Um, the word Advent just means arrival. It, it's a Latin word, uh, essentially it means coming or arrival. And it's in Advent we recognize that, that Jesus has come. And as I said, he's coming again. We're between two worlds. We live in the now and the not yet. We have received, but yet we have so much more to receive in all its fullness. Jesus has come and still we wait. We wait for his coming again. But waiting, I can't say that in a posh way because I have no T's because I'm from Balamina. So waiting, wait, does that sound weirder? Waiting is a problem for us, isn't it? Ad, uh, Amazon is killing Advent. This was the big epiphany I had this, this week. Ad, Amazon is killing Advent, for me at least, because Amazon Prime uh, has, epitomizes my impatience, right? Uh, Amazon has made it even more impossible for me to wait. And I think this is something that is just part of our culture now. We don't know how to wait. We want everything as quickly and as conveniently as possible. If my Amazon Prime uh, delivery doesn't come tomorrow, I'm going to be raging. I mean, how outrageous is it that the thing that I ordered that's currently in a different country doesn't arrive on my doorstep within 24 hours? How can I be expected to wait for anything that I want? But not only have we, I think, lost the ability to wait, we've actually begun to, or, or we've actually begun to celebrate impatience. It's somehow now seen as a good thing that you should get what you want as soon as you want it. Instant gratification is a better way. I want it and I want it now. Uh, there's an advert out on TV at the minute for New Balance trainers. And it actually says, the tagline is, impatience is a virtue. That's not what I was taught at school. I, I distinctly remember Mrs. McFarland, my P5 teacher, one of the best teachers I ever had. And she brought me up to her desk in the middle of a class. I don't know what I was doing, but she said, you need to learn that patience is a virtue. You're the most impatient boy I've ever met. That's still kind of true. But for all the impatience of society and the way that we live in the world now, there is still something good to be found in waiting. God, hasn't, God has made us in such a way that, that, that things don't just happen overnight. Good things really do come to those who wait. For example, it takes... Nine months of waiting for the birth of a baby. And that's a good thing. 
And sometimes we find it, that we find things that are worth waiting for, like the birth of a baby, or the, the run-up to a wedding, or graduate in university. These things take time to develop. And in these important things, the, the manner of our waiting is determined by the thing that we're waiting for. In other words, if something is worth waiting for, then we're more likely to be happy to wait for it. And so in this Advent season, we're going to ask ourselves, what are we waiting for? Why do we intentionally enter into this season of waiting? And the better question really, as we know, as Christians, is who are we waiting for? And every part of this, uh, every detail of this conversation between the angel Gabriel and the Virgin Mary um, tells us something about this person, this child that we're waiting on. Now, I don't know, even as, um, as Emily was reading that to us, there, there's a certain sense of, if you've been to carol services, maybe you're brand new to this, and, and that's great. If you're brand new to this, don't skim over the details. If, you, if you're used to this, what happens, like with me, is you hear Emily reading this passage, and it's almost just too familiar to be able to offer you anything fresh. In our familiarity, we lose the detail. And so we need to slow down. We need to learn that patience is a virtue. So let's look at the details and, and, and let's see what we can see about the one we are waiting for. And what we're going to see is our first, let's be on the screen. Jesus is the promised Savior who comes to meet our deepest needs. Jesus says the promised Savior comes to meet our deepest needs. This child that is promised to this young teenage woman is not like any other baby that has ever been born. The manner of his birth, his very nature, and what he comes to achieve are far beyond anything that the world has ever known. And here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at who is this child, the name of this child, and then finally our response to this child. So who is this child? Look, um, Luke, the, the, the guy who wrote this, this gospel, this account of Jesus' life, um, and actually after Christmas and the new year, we're going to just go into this book and study the, study the whole book. Um, but he was, a, he was a, a doctor, a scientist, a historian. He was a details man, right? So he gets his facts straight. Everything he puts in here is in here for a reason. There's a purpose behind everything he puts down on paper. And the first thing we need to notice, the first detail we need to stop at, is that this child will be born of a virgin. Look again at verses 26 and 27. I'll read them out for us. I think they're on the screen too. In the sixth month, the angel... The sixth month is not the date in the calendar. It's actually the sixth month of Mary's cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy as he mentions later on the passage. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, twice in that short introduction, he mentions that she's a virgin. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not normally something I include in people's my introductions of people. That's a weird kind of detail to, to, to mention. So why does he put it in there? Why is it important? I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this. Why did Mary have to be a virgin? Why did Jesus' mom have to be a virgin? Something that we kind of gloss over, isn't it? Talk about the Virgin Mary and the virgin birth and the immaculate conception and 
And, and we never really stopped to question why. But in actual fact, it's vitally important for our salvation that Jesus was born of a virgin. Hundreds of years ago, about 600 years before Jesus was born, God said through the prophet Isaiah that the hope of his people would be this. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Hebrew, the the word Emmanuel means God with us. So do you see what this means? A virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son is a sign that God is with us. God is with his people. The virgin birth means that that with the virgin birth, there would be no God with us. God has come to us, to be near to us, to be with us, to be one of us. And he has come through a virgin woman conceiving and giving birth. And by highlighting Mary's virginity, Luke is telling us, do you see who this baby is? He's the one that was promised all these years ago. He is the promised Savior. He is God with us. This is your sign, Mary. God is with us. But there's more to it than it being uh, prophecy fulfilled. You see, the virgin birth is essential because if Jesus had an earthly, biological, human father, he would have inherited the curse of sin that every other human being has inherited. He would have just been like us. In fact, Hebrews tells us that Jesus was made like us in every way. He was human being, except for one thing, sin. Every human father passes on our sinful nature to his children. This is how the world has been since sin came in. Every one of us is born with a sinful nature. And this means that even if we somehow manage to live a perfect life. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine living your whole life without not even having one thought wrong? (laughs) One judgmental thought? One vengeful thought? Can you imagine that? Even if we manage to go through our whole lives without um, doing the smallest thing wrong, we would still have this sinful nature. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and it has passed on to, to all of humanity all the generations, so that every single one of us are sinners. And so if if Jesus had had an earthly dad, he would have inherited sin as well. And if he had inherited our sinful nature, then he could never have died in our place for our sin as a perfect sinless sacrifice. If Jesus isn't sinless, then we have no mediator, we have no one to bring us close to God, we have no salvation. You see, we needed a new nature. We needed someone who wasn't uh, born with this sin. The virgin birth is about Jesus coming to meet our deepest need. Wow. But the second thing that we can see here in the detail is that Jesus is both human and divine. He's both human and God. Look at verse 31 for a second. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Gabriel tells Mary that she will conceive and bear a son. Now, there is nothing more human. That's how all of us got into the world. Our moms conceived in their womb. I'm not exactly sure of the details, um, the biology, how that works inside, but 
That's how we all got here. We were all conceived. There's nothing more human than that. This baby is going to be conceived and grow inside Mary. She'll carry him. She'll give birth to him. And apart from the way that Jesus is conceived, this will be a normal human pregnancy. Could the Son of God have just appeared on earth out of nowhere? Yeah, he absolutely could. But just as with the virgin birth, the fact that Jesus is born in a normal way as a human child with a human mother is vital for our salvation. The fact that Jesus Jesus had to be a human being because it's only because Jesus is fully human that he can be our sacrifice, our example, and our friend. It was humanity that had sinned against God. We all have inherited this sinful human nature, and so it could only be humanity that could pay the price for that sin. It was only because of human that he could die in our place as our substitute. And just like we saw already, it was, it was through one man that sin entered the world, so it was by one man that the cure for sin entered into the world. Just as it was one man's sin that brought condemnation to all people, it's through one man's righteousness all people can be made right with God. Just as it was through one man's disobedience that everyone inherited sin, so it is by one man's obedience that we, we can have our sin made right. Jesus became fully human because it was the only way to take our place and suffer for our sin. The work of, of atoning for our sin, for, for making us right with God on the cross, may be possible because Jesus is a true human being. But more than Jesus being our perfect sacrifice, the fact that Jesus is fully human means that he is our perfect example. He's not just our redeemer, he's our example. You see, Sometimes, if you think about Jesus, uh, all the, the, the temptation, just normal life stuff that he faced, every time he overcame a temptation, every time he chose not to sin, that wasn't automatic. Every single time he faced temptation, it was a hard-fought and won battle. Now, we all know what that feels like, don't we? We all know what it feels like to, 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 to have the temptation to do something that we know we shouldn't. We know how hard that can be. And every single time Jesus, as a human being, overcame that out of obedience to the Father. In obedience to the Father, Jesus chose not to sin. I think it's just staggering to think about that, isn't it? All the times people attacked him, he never had one sinful thought about them. Never thought about lashing out at them. All, all the interactions with women that he had, and he never had one lustful thought. All the times that, that the disciples were being annoying and not getting that he was sin, he never, ever thought anything negative about them. Jesus lived a sinless life because he was obedient to the Father as a human being. And Jesus says to us, I'm a human being, and I lived in perfect obedience to the Father, so you come and do the same. So to have a hold on you. You can live in obedience to God. And if, if we believe in the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can choose not to sin. Jesus has shown us the way. We can love our enemies. We can forgive those who hurt us. We can do good to those around us. We can choose not to be self-centered. Because he was one of us and he did it so we can follow in his footsteps. 
But Jesus is not just our sacrifice. He's not just our example, but he's also our friend. And, and this is one of my favorite parts of, of Jesus' humanity. Because Jesus was a human being, he knows what you're going through. No other God like this. He knows what it's like to suffer and be rejected, to, to love in return. He knows what it's like to be cold and tired and hungry. He knows what it's like to be misheard and misunderstood. Jesus knows. Isn't this incredible good news? The fact that he was conceived in his mother's womb and born as a human being means that God knows what you're going through. The one whose, whose glory and majesty are infinite came to earth as a human being so that he could taste our sadness, so that he could share in our weakness, so that he could know our pain. Because the Son of God was conceived in a human womb and born of a human mother, we never, ever, ever have to feel alone again. Isn't that good news? This is who Jesus is to us. Only the one who lived a perfect sinless life could be a worthy sacrifice for sins. Only because he is fully human can he be our perfect representative before God. Only because he is fully human and lived with all the pains and temptations that come with being a human being could he give us the perfect example to live. Only because he is fully human can we confidently say that he knows our needs to our weakness. He is no stranger. Only because he is fully human can Jesus come to you in your pain, your suffering, your anxiety, your worries, whatever it is, and say, I know what this is like. Only because Jesus is fully human can he come to you in the middle of even your deepest, most secret sin that you hate about yourself. I paid for this, so you don't have to. Jesus being fully human, this is where we can't understand Mary's role in all of this. Jesus being fully human is about him meeting our deepest needs. But Luke shows us that he is also fully God. He's fully human and fully God, right? The first part of verse 32, um, he says, He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. What a baby this is turning out to be. There have been many great people in history, haven't there? You can probably think of some that, that you uh, admire. Um, there have been great leaders, great warriors, great teachers, great queens. There, have even been, there are even great people in this room. It's like great examples of friends. People with great talents. But there's only ever been one person who is just great. Not a great this or a great that. Just great. The Bible only ever used this word great without any qualifiers, to speak about God. Only God is great in and of himself. He's not a great something or other. He is just great. And then the word that is described, this promised child, is actually indicating that he will be great, i.e. he will be God. He's also going to be called the Son of the Most High. This is one of the Bible's names for the one true God. It's a name for God that emphasizes God's majesty and supremacy over everything. Gabriel is saying, Mary, listen to me. Your son is supreme over everything. Your son is going to be God. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter that God is with us? Why does it matter that this baby boy is born and is God? 
Well, listen, it matters because there's no other way. There's no way that a mere human being could bear the infinite wrath of God. You see, you have a problem. We have a problem. Because of our sin, we stand under this wrath of God. Wrongs have to be right. Justice has to be done. We all want justice to be served, don't we? You only have to uh, watch the news for five minutes and you're like, I want justice to be done. But, but even the most noble and worthy human being would crumble in an instant under the wrath of God. But because Jesus is fully God, he can bear the wrath of God and can fully satisfy it. Because Jesus is fully God, he can be an eternal and once and for all sacrifice for sin. No animal sacrifice or even human sacrifice. A horrible practice. And it's only because Jesus is fully God that he could conquer death and be resurrected from death, put an end to the result and the curse of sin forever. So it matters that Jesus is God. We would have no salvation without Jesus being fully God. This is who this promised child is. Jesus is being, Jesus being fully human and fully him meeting our deepest need. You see how amazing this child is, this promised one? And the third detail we see in Luke is that this promised child is going to be our king forever. Luke says in verses 32 and 33, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Um, I think that for most of us, probably, that the idea of Jesus as king isn't something that necessarily resonates that well, certainly for me anyway, um, because we, we, don't, we don't really actually have um, monarchs that enter, influence our lives that much in any way, right? Um, you think of, the, think of the Queen of England, whatever your opinion of the royal family or any of that kind of stuff is, it, we're all aware of her, She's there in the background doing what she does, like we see her on TV. But in all honesty, what influence does she really have on our day-to-day lives? This is how a lot of people probably think about the queen. But when, when Gabriel tells Mary that her son is going to be king, it is really significant. You see, from the beginning of time, God has been creating a people for himself that will live under and flourish under his rule and reign. A king who's actively involved in our lives. A king who passes on the benefits of being part of his kingdom to us. I live in my palace and that's my palace. But a king who says, all this stuff that I have, you all get to be part of this. You all get to share in this. The nation of Israel was the prototype of this kingdom. God's people under God's rule. And David, who is mentioned here twice was the, one of the greatest of all these kings, the greatest of all these human kings. But even he could not be the kind of ruler that the people of God needed. God's people need an eternal king, a kind king, a just king, a king who sacrifices himself for the needs of his people, a king who can't die. And this is the kind of king that this child will be. He will take up the throne of David. And this is where Joseph comes into the story. It's important that, that it's going to be Joseph because Joseph is of David. And so Jesus, as Joseph's heir, can take up 
his ancestor's throne, rightfully, without any question. And Jesus won't be the kind of king who, who just appears to open a new hospital or to hand out awards. Jesus will be the greatest ruler that not only Israel, but the world has ever known. Just like the, the first kings of Israel were supposed to be, Jesus will be the kind of king where the presence of his authority and the benefits of his salvation will be distributed to all the people of his kingdom. Imagine a king who empties his vaults of gold and his bank accounts and his palaces and his and says, this is all you. This is for all of you, my people. That's the kind of king Jesus is. This is the kind of king we need. We don't need more political leaders who we can't trust. We, we don't need more politicians who are corrupt. We don't need another political theory of how government should be. We don't need more leaders who put themselves first. We need the kind of leader that we find. Our champion, our protector, our provider. You can always trust his word. He'll never put himself first. If that kind of leader appeared, we would happily follow them. We'd find flourish and we'd find satisfaction under his rule. And the best part of this, Lord Gabriel tells Mary, his kingdom will never end. His promised child will be, but I want to look very briefly at the name of this child. Uh, One of of the fun parts of um, looking forward to a baby being born is that you uh, get to choose their name. You get to have all these conversations um, about what you want to call a baby, if it's a boy or a girl, and maybe if you don't know what's going to be, you can have you know a few names for each. Uh, some people have the name all picked out because they like the name, you know. Um, but even before the baby's born, some people will start doing call, call the call the baby by name before they're born, and some people want to wait to meet the baby. Um, whenever Finley was being born, we had a few names chosen out for girls and for boys. And then Finley was born, and the midwife said to Haley, does he have a name? And Haley said, oh, he's Finley. And I said, well, I guess we're going with Finley then. Um, I've heard it can be a really fun thing to get to name a child. Um, naming, a ch- naming a child is an important, pri- uh, important thing. It's a privilege. But, but in, so- in, in one sense, Mary isn't given a choice, Right? Gabriel tells Mary, you're going to have this baby, and, and by the way, uh, you're going to call him this name. You're going to call him Jesus. Now, you might think, well, that's not fair. Mary, feel the heart of your own child. Haley's so offended she's leaving. <laughs> um, but in actual fact, far from it being taken away a privilege from Mary, it's actually elevating her status. Let, let, me, let me explain here for a second. You see, in that culture, it was the father who named the child. That's all why you always have, like, you know, so-and-so son of so-and-so. It was the father who got to do that. And the mother didn't get much input in that at all. But by giving Mary the name for her baby, God is actually putting Mary in the privileged position. Mary, the woman, the unmarried woman, the teenage woman, gets to name her baby. And then we actually know later on, from Matthew's gospel, that later on, the angel comes to Joseph. I've given Mary this name, and you're going to call your baby this. It's taken out of Joseph's hands. But why this particular name? Why Jesus? Well, listen, the name Jesus, the word Jesus, you know what that means? It means God is salvation. 
or God saves. That's what it means. This is more than a name. This is an identity. And it's all the things that we just talked about. Born of a virgin, both human and, and God, the king forever, that Jesus could actually be Jesus. Only by being both, uh, only by being both human and God can he be our savior. Can he be God as our salvation? Mary is told to name her baby Jesus because he will be. He is what his name means. He will be God's salvation. He will be the promised savior who comes to meet our deepest needs. When the child is born and Mary lays him in that manger and calls his name Jesus, it's an announcement to the world that God's salvation has come. We've not been left to suffer on without hope. We no longer have to carry guilt and shame over what we've done. We no longer stand under the wrath of God because why Jesus? Salvation has come. No wonder we're told to never take his name in vain. We don't use this name lightly or without respect and honor. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, Therefore God has, all, has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him and given to him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's at, the, it's at Jesus' name that every knee should bow. His name is above every other name. His name is Jesus, and Jesus is God's salvation come to us. And we owe him our worship and our devotion. And that leads me on to our final point this morning. How do we respond to this coming child? I love thinking about Mary in this whole Christmas story. Sometimes in the, in the Protestant church, we can be a wee bit nervous of giving too much attention to Mary. It's like we're worried that one day we'll wake up and suddenly be Catholic or something. But we're okay. We can talk about Mary for a minute. Mary is an incredible example of faith. And in this story, she is an incredible example of how to respond to God's grace and the coming of his salvation. And the first thing that we see... Uh, I, I, I should say, actually, that I think that Mary's journey through this conversation kind of reflects or mirrors our journey in, in salvation a wee bit. And let me explain by that. Because first, the first thing that happens is that, that Mary receives the undeserved grace of God. Like all of us, Mary receives the grace of God. In verse 28, Gabriel says to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then again in verse 30, he tells her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Twice Gabriel says to her, that, she's a, that she has God's favor. Now that word favor, in our English word, it's actually the same word in Greek for grace. It's charis. It's grace. Gabriel said to Mary, listen, God, you don't need to be afraid. Don't be worried. God is actually his grace on you. You're the one. You're the favored one. You're the graced one. And, th- and think about it. In the way that the world sees importance, there is nothing about Mary that deserves to be honored in this way. Nothing. She's from Nazareth, this tiny, unimportant Herdal village. And it's so obscure that Luke actually has to say, um, a city of Galilee named Nazareth. He's like, I know you'll never have heard of Nazareth, but it's, it's a place in Galilee. That's how unimportant it was, a wee farming village. 
She's also an unmarried woman, which in that culture was to be in a pretty disadvantaged position. It was almost impossible to have any power or recognition apart from having a husband or until you were married a father. And yet here is God heaping grace on her and I, and I say, I've been saying woman through all of this, but actually, if she were here right now in our church, she'd be part of our youth group. She'd be one of the younger ones in our youth group. She's a woman, she's unmarried. She was probably a young teenager at the time. 12, 13, 14. No credentials. A woman, she's unmarried. She's from a farming village in the back end of nowhere. And God says, I'm going to honor you. This is the way my kingdom is going to be. This is the way Jesus is going to operate. The very least will receive the honor. The way we've seen Davy and Beth do it around their table, the very least are going to come. And Mary is by God, not because of anything she is or has done, but simply because God chose to demonstrate his amazing grace through her. God is making it clear that what is happening is on the basis of his grace and not any human worth or power or authority. It's by God's grace and God's grace alone that salvation comes into the world. When Christ comes to us, we are the recipients of God's grace. And if we're to receive salvation, if we're to see that God at work in our lives, then we need to realize, all of us, that we are just recipients of his grace. We have nothing to bring to the table. But salvation comes to us by his grace and his grace alone. And just like Mary, we receive the undeserved grace of God. The second part of Mary's journey in this is that she then recognizes the divine intervention. She sees that God is, is doing something in her life. Now, when Mary hears this news that she's not just going to have a baby outside of marriage, which in those days would be a huge scandal, but also that she's going to have this baby while still being a virgin. And on top of that, this baby's going to be... She understandably has some questions, right? She wants some clarification. And so she says to Gabriel, Gabriel, how, 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 how can this happen? Now notice she doesn't say, this isn't going to happen. She's like, no way. She doesn't say any of those things. She says, how can this happen? She's not, she sees that God has given her grace and she says, how can this happen? Because from where I'm standing, this is impossible. I'm a virgin. See, Mary sees the human limitations and questions how this thing can happen. And isn't that just like all of us? We see our situation through our human eyes. We think, God, how can this ever get better? How can there ever be a way out of this situation? Maybe you have a friend and you think, God, I don't think they'll ever trust you. It seems impossible. And as long as we continue to see things from our own perspective, we'll miss what God is doing in our lives. But then Gabriel reveals the divine intervention. Gabriel shows her, listen, this isn't about you. God is doing something in you. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. The Most High will overshadow God, will be born through her. This is, like, uh, the, this is like the imagery of in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, the place where God's presence came. When God's presence came into the tabernacle, a cloud overshadowed it. So here's what's going on here. 
God, just like the cloud covered the tabernacle when God's presence took up residence, so God is going to cover Mary with the presence of his Spirit so that the embodiment of God can take up residence in her. Isn't that incredible? Gabriel says, Mary, don't be afraid. Don't you see what's happening here? God is doing this. You think it's impossible? Nothing is impossible with God. And it's when she sees God intervening in her life that she's able to accept it. You see her response. She submits completely to his will. Look at verse 38. Probably one of the most incredible verses in the Bible. And Mary, teenage, unmarried, from the back end of nowhere, no credential Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary received the undeserved grace of God and she sees how he is intervening in her life. And then what does she do? She completely submits to him. She submits to his will. By faith in the goodness of God, in response to the grace that he has poured out in her, she just submits. She chooses to give herself to him. The word servant here is actually the word for slave. Mary responds to the grace of God by I'm your slave. I belong to you completely. There's not one part of me that isn't yours. My whole life is yours. I am here to do what you want me to do. And isn't this the right response to receiving the grace of God? Isn't this the, the right response to, to the God's salvation, the promised Savior coming to us? Mary's response is the right response to the overwhelming grace of God. Mary's response is the right response to God's salvation coming to the world. What other response is there to our Savior who's born of a virgin, who is both human and divine and our King forever? What else can we say except, I submit to you, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Such an amazing Savior, such amazing grace deserves our complete submission to his will in our lives. And it's hard to find a better example of faith in the Bible than the faith we see in Mary's last words here. Let it be to me according to your sins. May what God has spoken come into effect in my life. May everything you have said come true in me. That's faith. And as we receive the grace of God through the coming of our Savior, and as we follow him through this life, waiting for and looking forward to his coming again, what better response is than saying, Lord, I am yours. Let your word come into effect in my life. So here's the challenge. Because as much as this is um, about remembering Jesus and, and remembering who this child is and looking forward to his, his coming again, it's also about recognizing that as we look forward to that coming again, we need to receive his grace and live by faith. So, so here's the challenge. How are you going to respond? How are you going to respond to, to, Jesus, to God pouring out his grace to, the, to this, the coming of this, this perfect Savior, meeting your, your deepest needs? How are you going to live in the light of the coming of our Savior? Are you going to give yourself over to Him completely? Are you going to submit to His will in your life? Are you going to be like Mary, even though she is troubled and frightened? Says, Lord, I am yours, and let your word come true in me. And here's how I know that Mary's example of faith is a good one. When she says, I am the Lord's slave, 
let it be to me according to your word. When she says those words, she's actually foreshadowing her son's words. She actually becomes a type of Jesus in this. She, she, she mirrors what the Lord Jesus will say. She's, she's like the first disciple. It's incredible. Because in the night before Jesus gave himself up to die on the cross, it's almost like he repeats his mother's words, isn't it? He says, Lord, I know that, that giving myself over to you and your will means torture and agonizing death on the cross. What does he say? Not my Lord. So how are we going to respond to the coming of our Savior? Because his coming is the coming of the promised Savior who meets our deepest needs. So may we respond with the faith of Mary and submit to his will in our lives. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you that you are the one who pours your grace, not just to Mary, but on all people. By sending this promised Savior. And Lord Jesus, as we think about your, these words spoken about you to your mother, Lord Jesus, we want to recognize that you are the one who meets our deepest needs, that, that without being born of a virgin and without um, being both human and, and, and God and without being our king, you could never be our Savior. Father, we want to submit to your will this morning in our lives. Help us process this and apply this. May you be glorified through our obedience to you and our submission to your will. And Father, for anyone who has these things, anyone who is struggling to, to know what you're doing in their lives, Father, I pray that, that they would just take on the posture of Mary and say, I am your servant. Father, we know that you're coming to us as good news. We know we never have to be alone again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.